When something is supposed to be better than something else, how do you know how much better that something else is? You know, what's the difference? I'll ask it this way. What's the difference between being just a teeny bit better, like incrementally better, versus being way, way better, revolutionarily better? You know, what, what, what's the difference? And to kind of tease this idea out, I wanted to start today by playing a little game called better or way better. And so in just a moment, I'm going to show you a series of pairs of things, one of which is presumed to be in some degree better than the other. And what I want you to do across all of our locations is just shout out from your perspective whether you believe this thing is just better or whether it's way better. Okay, so when I show you these pairs of things, you're going to shout out better or way better. You understand? Okay, so here we go. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, I want us to consider episode nine of the Star Wars series versus its predecessor, episode eight. Is episode nine better or way better? Shout it out. You know, from my perspective, I would say episode nine is way better. It was an amazing conclusion to the whole Star Wars series. And if you haven't seen the movie, I would highly encourage you to go and check it out. It was way better, especially way better than episode eight. Okay, now we're getting the hang of this. So let's try another one. How about last week's preacher versus this week's preacher? Better or way better? Shout it out. You know, I can hear you know, Becky saying way better. I hear Krista only shouting out a better. So I appreciate that encouragement. Not sure what to make of that. And I apologize in advance that today can't be way better than last week. And, and then finally, let's see how we do on this one. Um, third one is the uh, Big Mac with bacon versus the regular Big Mac. Shout it out. Better or way better? So I threw this last one out because from my perspective, it's actually a trick question because the Big Mac with bacon is hashtag not a Big Mac. I don't know if you know this or not, especially if you're in the next generation of people, but there's a song associated with the Big Mac that says the Big Mac is two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. There's no bacon in the song. So if you think that a Big Mac with bacon is an upgrade, that's fine, but it is fundamentally not a Big Mac, and so it doesn't apply to our game called Better or Way Better. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thanks for playing that along with me today. Why I wanted to do that to kind of introduce this morning is because we've been on this journey uh, this past month learning what it's like for us to live lives that are better together in relationship with each other, with, with other people, than if we lived our lives independent and alone. And the question isn't just how much better is our life better together, but more importantly, what it would take to experience a life that is way better together than alone. And so if you're interested in pursuing that, uh, that's what we're going to look at today because of all of the days and all of the aspects of what it's like to live a life that's better together, the one that we're going to look at today promises an experience that is way, way better together than if we were on our own. 
So if you brought a Bible along or you have a a Bible app on your personal device, turn with me to chapter 5 of the book of Luke, the biographical account of Jesus' life uh, according to a doctor named Luke. Because in Luke chapter 5, we're going to pick up another story. We've been looking at a story from the life and teaching of Jesus in every one of these episodes in our Better Together series. And uh, we're going to do that uh, as well this morning, uh, beginning in verse 17 of Luke chapter 5, where it says this. One day, Jesus was teaching, and some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. So the story we're looking at today has Jesus teaching at a house, kind of in the backdrop, and in the foreground is actually some friends of a paralyzed man. Now, it's interesting that the story focuses on this paralyzed man because of course paralysis is a a two two level problem not only is paralysis a problem on its own but because of the paralysis you're incapable of solving that problem on your own it's not like this man had an illness or disease or a struggle where he could pop two advils or you know call 911 or, or you know rush himself down to the emerge he was powerless to help himself but thankfully he had friends who cared about him. And friends who uh, not only cared about him, but actively cared enough to address the powerlessness that this man had to address his paralysis by kind of getting him into the proximity of Jesus himself. And, uh, you know, the text doesn't say how long it was uh, in distance from the man's house to the house where Jesus was teaching or how much the man weighed. But You know, you can kind of assume that these men didn't just kind of uh, theoretically care. They actively cared in a heartfelt way that was willing to literally carry this man all the way across town to get him in proximity with Jesus. Because these men believed something about Jesus. They believed that Jesus contained some capacity, some power, some ability to address their friend's need. And so believing that about Jesus and caring so deeply about their friend, they were willing to carry him, physically carry him on a mat to get him in proximity with Jesus. They cared enough about their friend to bring him closer to Jesus himself. But it says when they got there, they ran into some new challenges. Verse 19 says, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. It seems that just getting their friend in proximity to Jesus wasn't enough. Interestingly enough, because of the crowd. I find this interesting that, you know, in a crowd of people who were all interested in Jesus themselves, none of them bothered to even notice these friends or this man on this mat enough to kind of considerately move out of the way and give him space to get closer to Jesus. All they were interested in, all they were paying attention to was their own experience of Jesus. And they were too interested in Jesus and what they could get out of them themselves to even bother to notice or to care about this paralyzed man. 
You contrast that with the friends who didn't just care enough to bring him there. They cared enough to kind of conquer the challenges in front of them. And again, Luke doesn't go into the engineering required to get their friend on the roof in the first place where there was probably no stairs onto the roof. Uh, they didn't talk about what it took to kind of open the roof in ways that were probably, you know, weather sealed. They had to remove one of these tiles, the text says. Nor did they describe how difficult it would have been to actually physically lower the man down steadily and get him to the place where he was actually right in front of Jesus, finally. But I think it's safe to say again that these friends not only cared, but they continued to care in a no matter what it takes kind of a way to get their friend close to Jesus. That's the contrast that Luke creates in this passage is the perspective or the attitude of the crowd who, while interested in Jesus, didn't really care at all, versus these friends who cared enough to not only activate their care, but to continue to activate their care in a whatever-it-took kind of a way to get their friend close to Jesus. And if the friends, if, if the crowd around these friends didn't notice, well, Jesus certainly did. Look what it says in verse 20 and beyond. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. We've seen remarkable things today. Now the passage doesn't go into detail as to how Jesus healed this paralyzed man. It doesn't tell us whether he just gave him the spiritual equivalent of a chiropractic adjustment or whether this was a, a full on miraculous kind of work of God regardless the man who formerly couldn't move was completely and freely healed, which was a remarkable thing. And what, what the author focuses on here, which I find interesting, is not how Jesus healed him, but more importantly, why? Because so often in the biographical accounts of Jesus' life, it's the faith of the person who receives the healing power from Jesus. But in this case, it wasn't. In this case, it was the faith of his friends. Notice it says when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends who brought him there and then did everything to kind of lower him down. It was the faith of the friends that compelled Jesus to offer healing to this man. And then, you know, not just the quantity of that faith, but the quality of it was being recognized by Jesus. And the result wasn't just that this man was healed, but that the crowds were affected as well. Recognizing that something had happened that was, in their words, remarkable. And the question is, what did it take for something remarkable to happen on that day when Jesus was teaching? What did it take for something to happen that was way, way better than they expected? What it took was someone or some people to care enough that they would do whatever it takes to get the people they cared about as close to Jesus as possible. That's what it took for this experience of life to be better together and to be, as the text describes, remarkable. And I say that because we've been in this series called Better Together and we've been discovering certain ways that life is better together in relationship than on our own. We learned, for example, that life is better together when we eat together. 
when we gather around tables and we open the tables and spaces of our lives up for relationship, to be known and to know, to provide attention and interest and understanding, hospitality and welcome. We also learned last week that life is better together when we pray together. When we use our words to engage in spiritually stimulating activity and conversation. Where we gather in ways that talk about the kinds of things and engage in the kinds of conversations that you wouldn't normally experience. We've learned that life can be better together by eating together and praying together. Today though I want us to appreciate that this is a whole new ball game. That if we are willing, as is evidenced in the text, to actually care for other people and to extend that kind of active quality of care to bring other people closer to Jesus, then we have the opportunity to experience something that the text describes as remarkable, that life is not just better together through eating together and praying together. Life is actually way, way better together if we're willing to love together. Look at what it says in the Old Testament. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that two are better than one. They're better together because it says they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The passage alludes to why relationships can be so much better together when we exercise care for others and love others with a love that comes from God. You know, when we're talking about loving together, we're actually talking about two things, just to understand this. We're talking about loving each other and caring about those in our immediate circles, friends and family members and the like. But we're also talking about loving other people beyond our immediate circles with a love that comes from God as a close circle. So extending love for one another and love for others is the full kind of zenith of what it looks like to love together in this way better together kind of way. And the Bible promises that when we do, we get to experience not just a quality of life that is better together, but a quality of life that is truly remarkable. A few weeks ago, a number of us uh, across our South Ridge locations got to experience this kind of remarkable dynamic uh, through the celebration of life of a longtime friend and member of our community, a guy named Norm Arnold. Uh, many of us know Norm and know that Norm first uh, showed up in our community through our homeless shelter in our St. Catherine's location and established a relationship with one of our pastors named Tom Lowen through kind of a, a forced relationship in what at the time was a trusteeship program. And so Tom and Norm engaged in this trusteeship program, but over time through the care that Tom extended to Norm, Norm started to reciprocate that to Tom. 
And pretty soon, uh, as we understood and celebrated before, uh, Tom's wife, Sarah Jade, started to get involved, and Tom's kids started to get involved, and Tom's inner circle of friends started to get involved in caring for Norm, and Norm caring for them. And pretty soon, it spilled into a whole wider circle where Norm was part of a poker group and part of, you know, going to hockey games and hockey tournaments to watch other people's kids. And, you know, people would visit Norm in the hospital and advocate for Norm's medical condition where the doctors would often, you know, choose to opt to ignore Norm and kind of one thing led to another and you had this kind of swirling of care for Norm and care of Norm for for so many other people to the point where we got the devastating news on Christmas Day that Norm had passed away and about a week later gathered for Norm's celebration of life it was actually quite a remarkable experience Uh, Norm's family was overwhelmed with just how many people were there to celebrate Norm and to grieve his loss and the impact of Norm in their lives. There were hundreds of people gathered at our St. Catherine's location that day. Um, I talked to one denominational leader afterwards who said that experience, that celebration of life was literally the church at its very best because of how incredible that experience of love and celebration of love was. The, the, the funeral actually even ended in an applause. Have you ever been part of a funeral service that ends in an applause? It was that you know, kind of unreal in that sense. I actually talked to one gentleman after who looked me in the eye and they said, I have never experienced something like that in my entire life and I probably never will. And the question is, what made that service, what made that celebration of the life of Norm Arnold so remarkable? Well, it was one thing and one thing only. It was the willingness for people, not in a one-time way, not in a theoretical way, but in an ongoing, active, consistent, no matter what, even when times are hard kind of a way, to live out the love of God in relationship to one another. It was the chronic, consistent contributions of love for each other and for others that at the end of Norm's life made the celebration of his life truly remarkable. What we need to appreciate today that I hope we're real clear on is that the reason, even in church communities, that those kind of experiences are so rare is because that behavior itself even in faith communities, is so rare. Experiencing and engaging in that kind of love still in our day and age is so rare because typically, like the crowds in the story, even though we might be interested in Jesus, many times we're interested for what we can get out of it. And I want us to be real clear how rare and how, how different of a challenge it is to be loving together than it is even to be eating together and praying together. Because if you stop and think about it, to eat together, all of us gain through that activity. Whether we do that a lot or make time for it or not, all of us benefit. Not just from the food itself, but from the space, the attention, the interest of others, the hospita- hospitality, and the welcome. We all gain when we eat together. Similarly, we all gain when we pray together. We engage in the kind of conversations that are stimulating to our spirits and stretching to our souls. Everyone benefits when you pray together. But loving together is in a different league, isn't it? Because loving together requires an attention over and above and beyond yourself toward another person. 
Loving together requires an orientation away from yourself toward another person and toward another person in a practical way and toward another person in an ongoing, many, in many cases, continuous, chronic kind of a way. And while you may not gain and instead feel like it is work, it's the kind of investment and the kind of work that God blesses because it's the kind of work that allows us to truly experience his heart of love. Remember what the scriptures say when it talks about God as synonymous with love. Remember that Jesus, when he boiled down the 613 Jewish commandments down to one, he boiled it down to the two directional love for God and people. Remember in the New Testament, when it uses superlative language about faith, it uses language like above all else. And the only thing that counts when it refers to a faith that expresses itself in Love. There's something special that happens when we allow love to flow that doesn't happen when anything else is flowing, which is why the biblical authors say this in places like 1 Corinthians 13. The Apostle Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Just like the crowds in Jesus' day, we can do all kinds of faith-based religious things and try to pursue Jesus out of personal interest. But if we do not have an others-oriented love, not much of spiritual significance really happens. And it's the difference today between being just better together in community versus being way, way better, remarkably better together as we allow love to flow to each other and to others. So around here, we want to be real clear on what it actually takes to experience that, particularly through the primary way that we facilitate that around here, our primary program of connection, what we call life groups. Life groups, if you're new to our church, are a way of subdividing our community into bite-sized chunks of our church family where people gather typically in each other's homes during the week and share their lives with each other and engage increasingly in these practices of eating together, praying together, and loving together. If you're new and you're not sure how to be part of one of these, uh, appreciate that next week is the first Sunday, again, of February. And on the first Sunday of every month, we have a free lunch that takes place right after our service at every one of our locations. That's called the Next Step Lunch. And next week at our Next Step Lunch, our connection staff and pastors are going to be at each of our locations to guide and help people take the next step specifically of joining in and experimenting with what it's like to be part of a life. Life group by explaining how they work and what days they're offered and what group might work specifically for you. So I'd encourage you to take that step of going to that next step free lunch and discovering how you can join a group. But let's be clear today on what it actually takes from every one of us if we're going to experience a quality of life that's not just better together but is way, way better. It takes more than signing up for what we can get out of it. It requires us to be oriented to the other people in the group. Described this way in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who demonstrated that 
as he walked the earth. The question isn't, can you join a life group and gain something out of it? The question, excuse me, the question is, can you join a life group and have the other group members on your radar and join the group and be part of the group for those of us who are part of life groups, be part of a life group for what we can contribute to other people and how we can help meet other people's needs by entering into their lives and drawing them closer to Jesus. Because when we do, when we love together, God shows up in remarkable ways. So the question for us is, can we approach our relationships with that kind of posture? Can we not only commit to eating together and praying together, but can we love together in a way that is more oriented to the other and how we can meet their needs than is oriented to ourselves and the needs that we need met. Gang, appreciate that this is a huge challenge, even or especially in an environment like our church family today, because just like today, you know, we're a crowd of people interested in Jesus. And just like in Jesus' day, just because you're a crowd that's interested in Jesus does not mean you care about other people in a way that loves them effectively. And the truth is, across our locations in an environment like this, even today, there are lots of people who maybe in a different way, but maybe in a 21st century kind of way, are just as paralyzed with the challenges that they're facing and just as paralyzed to not know what to do something, not, not know how to do something to resolve them that we might not even be noticing because our attention is on ourselves and what we could get out of Jesus. I imagine there are some of us here today who are paralyzed by our parenting challenges and we're just not sure where to go or where to turn for help. Some of us are paralyzed by financial burden or heavy debt load and we don't have the capacity in and among ourselves to get ourselves out of the mess that we find ourselves in. Some of us are paralyzed by mental health challenges, by depression, and we just can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Some of us are paralyzed by loss or rejection, either a breakup or a divorce or a job loss or the heaviness of grief. And we don't know how to navigate our way through that. Some of us are paralyzed by addiction or temptation or vices or just chronic habits that we're powerless to get out of. And we would love nothing more than for other people to reach out and invest in our lives and help draw us closer to the life and love and transformational power of Jesus. But we're powerless to do that on our own. And the question is, will we, in a crowd like this and in groups like we are during the week, will we care about more than ourselves enough to even notice? And when we notice, will we care about more than ourselves enough to enter in and to practically support in ways that are not just token or one-off, but in an ongoing, chronically caring, no matter what, as long as it takes to get the people around us and to get, as people around us, to get others closer to Jesus. The question today is not, will our life be better together and are we willing to eat together or pray together? The question is, are we willing to love together? Because it's only when we'll take our eyes off ourselves and orient us to an other 
in the love and life of God himself, that we can experience a quality of life that's not just better, but is way, way better. What the passage describes as remarkable because it creates the space for God's love to show up in remarkable ways. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you for the journey that you've had us on in this series and reminding us just how important it is to be in relationship with other people. But I pray that you would inspire us today and challenge us today in a way like no other to appreciate just how better together our relationships can be when we take the active ongoing step to love together. God, grip our hearts with our own perspective and even our own self-orientation. I pray that you would move the eyes of our heart to others, not just to ourselves and what we can get out of you. And I pray that as we do, we would listen well, we would enter in, we would empathize, and we would practically respond to be the active support to each other and to others as a community for Niagara in a way like no other. And as we do, God, and as we make space for you to show up in remarkable ways, I pray that we'd be quick to give you the credit that you're due. And thank you in advance for how way, way better our lives can be together sharing your love than on our own. We look forward to watching you do that work in us. And we love you and thank you in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.